We are missionaries in northern Iraq. Uh, Stacy sends her greetings. She was on the National Mall yesterday praying with 10,000 of her closest friends, uh, but misses you today. We've been in the mission field for about 20 years now. In 2014, we rolled into uh, northern Iraq uh, three weeks after ISIS declared the caliphate. Uh, we worked about three miles down the road from ISIS for the first couple of years. Uh, you all are a great um, church partner to us, and we are especially grateful for your prayers. I just have one, um, one request this morning of you, and that's if you would continue to pray for us. Uh, we have prayer cards on the, on the back table there, and prayer is really the engine behind mission. It's the most important thing in seeing the kingdom of God come, and we'll talk about that. Only, I mentioned during catechesis that um, only 3% of all missionaries go to the Islamic world with 1.8 billion souls. Um, and a big reason for that is it's hard. It's hard. And there are some days, um, you know, it's 125 degrees out and the, the Kurds are being cranky and things are bad in refugee camp and I really don't feel like leaving the house. And just knowing that the folks in Waco Christ Church are praying for us you know, gets me out of bed and um, back in camp that day. So we are we're really grateful to you. When Stacy and I were uh, in missionary training school, it was a long time ago, uh, one of our first lessons in school was on being unoffendable. It's something I'm, uh, I'm still working on. Uh, I will assuredly find ways to offend and, and be offended by others. You know, when we all experience this, we do it. It's, it's natural for us as, as sinners. I, th I thank God for the Benedictine motto, always we begin again. I had a bad few days last week. I was just being terrible. And uh, I just got up one morning and remembered that and started over, began again. Being unoffendable, it's, it's a posture we can take. It's a choice we can make as part of living a, a gospel life. But it's tied into a, a bigger choice we have to make. Brand Hansen, guy, he wrote a, a book called Unoffendable. In it, he writes, yes, the world is broken, but don't be offended by it. Instead, thank God that he intervened in it, and he's going to restore it to everything it was meant to be. His kingdom is breaking through bit by bit recognize it, and wonder at it. Looking at the Old Testament lesson and jumping right into today's gospel, performance takes priority over promise in God's kingdom. We can talk the talk, but do we walk the walk? Are we really following Jesus? And are we doing his will, which is to see his kingdom come? His will, his mission, what he what he launched, what he's still doing today, is to put everything under his good rule and reign, where all creation flourishes. The church in the West, no surprise, is dying. And a big part of the problem is we're just simply not doing what Jesus said to do. Jesus never said make church members. But that's a lot of our focus. What did he say to do? He said, make disciples who make disciples, because this is when his kingdom comes. 
Things are not going to get better until we start following Jesus' plan, doing it his way, his will. I'll land the plane today on why that matters so much. But let's start with, it's easy to take offense. It's easy to quarrel. Surprise, human beings fight. Some of us are old enough to remember when the Berlin Wall came down. And if you were around at that time, I think you remember we just thought the world was on this uh, precipice of a new era of peace. Some of us grew up under the shadow of, of the Cold War and, and, and what that looked like. And we thought we were free from all that. And then suddenly came 9-11 and the, the war on terror. Just an FYI, there are 80 million displaced people on the planet right now, an all-time high. A new report shows that 37 million have been displaced as a result of the U.S. war on terror. Something to think about. Now, the vast majority of refugees are stateless and homeless because they're fleeing war and violence. They're, they're not economic refugees trying just to get ahead. They are running for their lives. Stacy and I again live and work in northern Iraq. We still have one million refugees from ISIS within a short drive from our house. They're in 37 UN camps. The average stay in a UN refugee camp globally is 18 years. It's a generation. So we're in it for the long haul. We promise not to leave until camp is empty. One of the challenges and why we need your prayers uh, in our region is that we have a war every 18 months. The people groups there have been fighting continuously for 8,000 years and they have long memories. They are holding grudges from like 3,000 years ago. And us human beings, we fight. We, we hurt each other, we, we kill each other. And if you haven't noticed, our, our country is a little bumpy right now. We're, we're back on leave here and visiting churches and some days I just want to pick up and go back to the Middle East where it's calm and sane. Uh, Mark Sayers offers a prescriptive for the times we find ourselves here. I think this is really good during a uh, particularly contentious election season. Live with a peaceful presence in an anxious system, and you will become a healing agent of renewal. Let's try that again, because our system's pretty anxious right now. Live with a peaceful presence in an anxious system, and you will become a healing agent of renewal. So question, you know, are we following the herd and embracing the collective anxiety? Are we getting sucked into it? Or are we living as healing agents of renewal in the midst of it? Good discipleship question, okay? One of the things that's, that's really deceptive about this whole problem of fighting, quarreling, is, is that if you're standing on the outside of a conflict, the solution can look so simple. You know, if you see two ethnic groups fighting, which we do, every day, all day, um, and you're not in one of those groups, you, you stand back and you say, you know, it's easy to see how to get out of this, folks. You know, the, the pain and suffering you're causing each other is just greater than the issues. Just stop doing it. Kurds, Arabs, you know, you're just hurting yourselves. Knock it off. It looks so simple. But if, if you're on the inside of that, that conflict, people say, hey, it's not that simple. You don't understand. I can't just give in. I, I can't just walk away. 
We're, we're trapped in this. Now, where does this come from? The Bible says it comes from the inside. We have a problem. There's a disease. And, and we'll never treat the disease unless we understand its source. We won't find the right remedy if we don't have the right diagnosis. So here's, here's the diagnosis. One, why do people fight? Well, in Philippians verse 3, we kind of see the essence of what causes the fighting. Do, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. A good translation here is spirit of rivalry. It's a spirit that lives to fight. And, and here's the thing with this spirit. We need to know it. it it's governed not by truth or, or by reason or thought. It's, it's governed by prejudice. Let me talk what that means. What governs your relationship to people? It can either be, it's one of two things. It can either be your needs or the truth. It's one of two things. You can either come to understand the truth through your needs, or you can, or you can understand your needs through the truth. Let's do that again. You can either come to understand the truth through your needs, or you can understand your needs through the truth. If the truth governs your needs, then you can have a, a good discussion with somebody, a real conversation. You can say, okay, I have my needs, you have your needs, let's see what the truth says here. Let's be reasonable, let's, let's think it through, let's talk about it. But if you let your needs govern your understanding of the truth, all you're going to do is fight. Anybody with a Facebook account can see that, right? If you're governed by this, this spirit of rivalry, you're a person who's, they say this, by definition, I'm right because it's about me. By, by definition, my needs are right because they're my needs. My needs make something true. By definition, my group is right, my party is right, because my group is right. It's my group. That's called prejudice. This is a spirit that lets, refuses to let thought or reason be the thing that guides us. This, this spirit, here's what it does. It, it makes us take everything personally. It makes every discussion about you. Not, it's really not about the issue or the truth. And we take offense because, guess what? We've made it all about me. The, the spirit of rivalry makes it impossible for you to actually think about the actual issue. Instead, what, what do we do? We think about, what is this doing to my pride? What is this doing to my reputation, my standing? How does this make me look? How does this affect my, my personal interests? What do we have going on here? I, me, my. We put ourselves at the center. That's what Paul's getting at here. And, and it's this pattern of behavior, this spirit of rivalry, that makes us take everything personally. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Here's what he's, re this is interesting. Here's what he's reminding us of. What Paul is telling us here is that human beings are hungry for glory. We're hungry for glory. Now, this word glory, what is it? It means heavy, weightiness, importance. Paul is telling us that, that fundamentally, we are deep down afraid of not mattering. The worst thing for a human being is not to be hated. The worst thing for a human being is to be ignored. That's how the refugees feel. No one pays any attention to them. No one thinks about them. They're there for 18 years. They don't have any food, any health care. They're in a tent. 
It's 125 degrees and no power, no fan, and we've just been totally forgotten, ignored. The thing we're most afraid of is that, that we have no glory, that we have no significance, that we don't matter, we won't last. So what the Bible tells us, therefore, is that every human being, in our, our deepest sense, we're trying to manufacture glory. We feel like we're somehow cosmically small, so we act big. We manufacture glory. Now, now where does this come from? Again, let's dig down. Let's, let's look underneath it. The Bible says this ultimately comes from sin. Okay, the essence of sin is always wanting things your way. Think about it. We were originally put in the Garden of Eden. We were before God. We were built to know and to serve God, not ourselves. And because we were not centered on ourselves, we were centered on God, we had glory. We didn't die. We lasted. We were beautiful. Nothing broke. But when the human race put itself at the center, what happened? We disintegrated. Everything fell apart. Physically, we became subject to death, and that haunts us. See, we know the glory is gone. We know something's wrong. Why do we get upset about death? Because we long for the glory we had. We know we were built for glory. We know we were built to last. And now we're passing away. We're decaying. So we're starved for glory, the glory that we had. And we know we lack it, so therefore we manufacture it, and, and we take offense when this constructed weightiness is challenged. We, we've manufactured our own glory. It's about us, and we become offended when we're, we're challenged. All right? That's the diagnosis, okay? Here's the remedy. We have a son in college. He's a, a senior at, a, at an East Coast university, and uh, his time there has made him a bit of a socialist who now hates the police. Tuition money well spent. And to keep the door open with him, uh, I've had to learn to bite my tongue and just to listen. I really just want to say is, you know, you're cut off. You know, his mom has literally taken him out of the will. I mean, she's just had it with it. Uh, but I just keep coming back to keep the truth at the center and, and put my ego aside. And, and we talk almost, I think, every day on Facebook Messenger. And, and, and usually they're his rants. And last week during one of his rants, he finally, we were working through this. We we're talking about stuff going on in the U.S. Um, he finally came to the conclusion there is a, the problem is a hardness of heart. Aha. That was my spot to interject that the only solution to this mess is an outside intervention. We need God. And he gave me an amen. His mom was so happy. There's hope. He's not back in the will yet, but there's hope. <laughs> so the, the remedy here come, for Paul comes in verse 5. It says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Something can happen inside of us, but only because something happened outside of us. We need an intervention. So there's an attitude we can have that kills the vainglory, that makes us no longer touchy, no longer glory-starved, no longer always feeling cosmically small. 
And the way to get over this is first to see that something has happened on the outside. Verse 5 points to verse 6. Jesus emptied himself of his glory. So though he was in the form of God, though he was in the very nature of God, though he had all the glory of God, he emptied himself and became human. So Jesus embraced our worst nightmare. All the things that, that we fear most, Jesus voluntarily walked right into. In the end, Jesus was utterly rejected, cosmically ignored, not, not just by the, the, his friends around him, but by his father. My father, my father, my God, why have you ignored me, forsaken me? See, Jesus took on the thing we're most afraid of, and he took what we deserved, and he emptied himself of his glory. He was despised, rejected, ignored. So Jesus became utterly small for you and for me. Why? Why? Just before he's about to die, before he's about to be cosmically ignored by God the Father, Jesus looks up in John 17 and says, Father, I want them to have the glory that I had with you before the world began. There it is. He emptied himself of his glory so we could be filled. So we could go back to the way God originally created and intended for us to be. You know what it means to become a disciple of Jesus? To share in his glory? It means to follow him. If we go to God and say, I'm as good as other people. Why aren't you answering my prayers? You're claiming to have glory on your own. If you claim to have glory, you'll have none. If you try to fill yourself up, you'll end up empty. We're all afraid we're unimportant. We're afraid we're just waves on the sand and we don't last. To be a Christian means to dredge all that up and look at God and say, it's true, I have no glory. I have no righteousness in myself. We'll say that in the prayer of humble access. I have none in myself. You know, my turnaround point in life came when I admitted to God I was no longer qualified to run my own life. I wrecked the car and I had to give him the keys. And this isn't a one-time event. I have to constantly fight the urge to take back the keys. But when we do this, when we come empty-handed and say, well, I'm on the outside, God says, come in. As soon as you say, I'm weightless, God says, now you count. That's what had to happen on the outside. Then Paul says, now have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. See, when you bring Jesus into your life, you bring your life into a living argument. Let me explain what this means. This living argument is constantly telling you that when you're about to get upset because someone has treated you as small, Jesus is a living argument who says, who cares what they think? I love you. Who cares? Why are you trying to complete yourself by trying to claw glory out of this situation? Don't you see what I've done for you? Look at me on the cross for you. That's how much value you have. And I let nothing come between you and me. That's how much value you have. That's how much worth you have. And nothing gets in between us. Isn't that enough? Don't you see you're a bigger person than this? Do that, and you'll be able to live like a big person, not a petty person. 
not someone always upset by little things, easily offended. Jesus has, Jesus has given you the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. So this is what you can say now when you're about to get fussy. The stars might fall from heaven, but I'm going to outlast them. The mountains might be worn down to pebbles, but I'm going to outlast them. Their glory is nothing compared to mine. Can you say that to yourself? Can you let the logic of that catch fire in you? Do you feel small? Jesus Christ became small so you could have a big life, not a petty life. So stop worrying about snubs. Take criticism like a big person. You have cosmic glory if you're in Jesus. And you can only be at peace and only overcome this greatest of human diseases if you have the mind of Christ Jesus. Now let's just land the plane with why does this matter so much? Well, how, is this, how is this fit? Making these decisions to have the mind of Christ, it's all part of a bigger decision we have to make. It's a, it's a decision we have to make. Are, am I going to be an obedient disciple of Jesus? You know, I, I, I go to church, so that makes me a Christian, is what's killing the church. Now, of course we're to gather on the Lord's Day in worship and fellowship, but this isn't an insurance policy. Hey, look, I did my duty so I can go to heaven when I die. That's a Western phenomenon, and honestly, only Westerners could manage to make the gospel about ourselves. I'm saved. That is missing Jesus' point by a long shot. He didn't send the disciples out with salvation cards. Did he? We read in the same book? What did he send them out to do? Bring the kingdom of God. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. Proclaim and bring the kingdom of God. See, if we, if we do, I'm, I'm saved. Let's get to heaven. We're, you totally miss what Jesus talked about the most, which is the kingdom of God. Jerry Trousdale writes, obedience to the will of God unleashes the kingdom of God. See, God is slowly undoing all the curses of the fall, the big mess, and that's his heart. The world's mess will not be cleaned up completely until Jesus comes again and sets everything right. But we can see change on a large scale. Things change. Societies change. Specifically, when people from all walks of life align their actions to the will of God in all aspects of our life. See, to see brokenness healed, we need to see the world through the lens of the kingdom and then practice obedience to Jesus. Let's do that one again. It matters. To see brokenness healed, we need to see the world through the lens of the kingdom and then practice obedience to Jesus. We're, we're off track in the West. And, and a big solution here is understanding the gospel of the kingdom. Most Christians don't. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? St. Augustine wrote, Do you wish the kingdom of heaven to be yours hereafter? Then see to what kingdom you belong now. Beautiful. See, disciples of Jesus follow and do his will. The kingdom comes where people of God do his will. 
People and places change. The sick recover, the blind see, the deaf hear, the oppressed are set free, the dead come to life, the poor receive good news, broken hearts are mended, broken relationships are reconciled, injustice is defeated. It matters, it matters to the kingdom of God. I have seen what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes upon a whole place. I can tell you our refugee, refugee camps are miserable places. We have epidemic suicides. They're places of total hopelessness. And we rolled into our main camp with the Yazidi people about two years ago. And I can honestly tell you the atmosphere has changed because Christ followers are in there being obedient to Jesus, loving them. Like I can feel it. Something in there has, has completely changed. And we see uh, smiles and laughter where there was despair. And we see some hope emerging. We work in a place in um, western Kenya. People don't know much about There was a genocide in 2000, 2007, 2008 where the only white people to have ever spent the night there. Uh, when we first rolled in in 2012, they took us straight to the police station because they didn't know what to do with us. And um, they registered us. And the thing that we noticed right away is the whole area is there are no men. All the men were killed in a, in a genocide and, and just wiped out completely. So it was an area of just widows and orphans. And there were about seven known Christ followers in this area. And, uh, you know, we, we got in there and just began to build for the kingdom of God. Uh, the women were prostituting themselves for kerosene so their kids could have light at night. So we got them all solar lights and water filters, and it just stopped the prostitution immediately. And then we built a school for the kids there. There was no school. And then we got an email, and they said, the tribe that genocided them was about half an hour away. They went to the other tribe and said, these crazy Americans have come here and built a school for us, so we're gonna build a school for your children. And now these two tribes visit each other and help each other. We've gone from seven to about 3,500 known believers in the area. The kingdom of God has just fallen on these people and it changed everything. So being unoffendable is one of the marks that we are walking in obedience to Jesus and acting as agents of healing in the world, acting as agents of his kingdom. That's your job. Are you a baptized follower of Jesus? Your, your mission is to be an agent of his kingdom, bringing renewal. That's your central purpose in life. Brown Hansen writes again, choosing to be unoffendable or relinquishing the right to my anger does not mean accepting injustice. It means actively seeking justice and loving mercy while walking humbly with God. And that means remembering that I'm not him. What a relief. We're not God, but we're to take on his mind in every situation. When someone's getting under your skin, take on Jesus' mindset. Remember who you are. You have cosmic glory and you're an agent of healing and renewal. So I want to challenge you to some obedience this week. Practice it. It's when disciples are obedient that the kingdom comes and everything changes. 
I mean, do you, do you honestly think on November 4th the country's going to just settle down? Anybody think that? Half the people are going to be angry. It's only the God's kingdom that's going to fix the messes we see around us. There's, there's no political, military, or diplomatic solution to the Middle East. But I have seen people groups come together who have been fighting for 8,000 years around the gospel when the kingdom has come upon them. That's the only place I've seen it in the Middle East is when they gather around the gospel and the kingdom heals those divisions. This matters. Have you seen what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes? I have on multiple continents, and it's beautiful. It's the kingdom of God that's going to fix the problems we face. And the kingdom comes when followers of Jesus obey him. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.